this is really a blessed country and a great country and there's so many reasons why uh, we need to fix it we have to fight vested interests I, I i i you know i've seen it you know i know this this you know trying to convince vested interests to to change is going to be really really tough but i'm really appealing to everyone to not put yourself first put the nation first Hello, I'm Noel Lim Onazia Speaks by Maybank Investment Banking Group. On this podcast is Tan Sri Nazir Razak, banker and chairman of Bank Pembangunan Malaysia, to talk about his plans to transform the institution as the nation's foremost development partner that was founded in 1973 when his father was Prime Minister. We also talk about his idea and passion for changing Malaysia through a better Malaysia Assembly. Welcome, Nazir. As chairman of Bank Pembangunan, what do you hope to bring to the table? Well, I was asked to go to Bank Pembangunan essentially to help with the creation of a large and more effective development finance bank for uh, the country. Uh, one of the ways that they were planning to do this was by a merger of a few existing DFIs. So I guess, you know, my experience both in banking as well is in mergers should be helpful uh, in this process. Well, I couldn't say no, simply because Pembangunan was one of those legacy entities set up by Tunraza, and it isn't uh, in the shape that uh, it should be today, 30 years on, um, so or 50 years on. So I kind of felt that I should give it a go. What would be a more effective DFI look like? I think a more effective DFI will certainly be larger and more efficient, leveraging on user scale. Uh, that's one. Two is, I think it would be one that is much clearer in its mandate, um, which is very distinct to the mandate of a commercial financial institution. Our agenda is really to support development, uh, not so much to make money. Um, when we lend, uh, we want to get repaid. Uh, we want to make some money to kind of reinvest. Uh, but it's not about maximizing profit. It's about maximizing impact on development. Uh, and, you know, this objective of maximizing impact on development, one needs to be very careful because it's very easily abused because everything can be stretched uh, to be defined within that umbrella, very broad umbrella. So uh, one of the early things we've done is to develop this thing called MIND or measuring impact on national development. So when we evaluate a credit or any um, deal, we look at it from this MIND perspective as well as um, the financials of it, right? So here we look at things like employment, economic multiplier, environment, uh, and those other measures in a more balanced way with profitability uh, and then we take a decision you could even at the extreme think that you know maybe you know we don't make uh, sufficient interest or whatever but you know if sufficient jobs and or sufficient environment uh, and environmental enhancement uh, is brought then we will still do the deal Help me understand this. Companies that probably score quite well according to some of the matrix that you mentioned may go to commercial banks as well so why would they come to Bank Pembangunan? If they can go to commercial banks, by all means. And one of our KPIs is also to crowd in private sector banks. Yeah, and I don't want to compete. I mean, I, I, when I first came in, there were a few deals where I could see that the bankers were trying to, you know, get their, their, their loan growth target um, and were doing so by competing uh, with CIMB and Maybank. 
right? That's not what we're there for. If CIMB and Maybank can do it, we should back off. If CIMB and Maybank um, can't do it, but might be more comfortable if we take, you know, the kind of first loss piece, uh, then that's that's something we play. Uh, and there we meet our KPI because we insource private capital uh, into a kind of more developmental um, um, uh, proposal. How do you measure the risk of these deals? Uh, we evaluate the credit uh, in the same way as we do uh, as all commercial banks. We take all the factors into account. We don't compromise on the fact that when we lend, we want our money back. Then on top of that, there's of course the margin, right? How much interest you charge. Uh, and here, um, we are less, I guess, less focused uh, on this part of it. Uh, we, when we look at this part of it, we bring in other things. I mean, if, 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 if this deal needs to be done at a, a very small margin, but it delivers a lot more jobs uh, and it creates a multiply effect on the economy, uh, then we should do it. Uh, and there are also some higher risk um, um, uh, projects that uh, we would take on because our, our risk appetite uh, can be greater. Our timelines also can be greater. Our accounting is very different. Um, if you look at uh, commercial banks uh, in the way that they have to make provisioning, etc., in the way that the capital uh, is under Basel uh, 3 and uh, 4 and so on. Uh, whereas in our case, uh, there's a lot more latitude, for instance, to take equity positions, right? Uh, whereas banks get uh, equity directly knocked off. Um, whereas in our case, you know, it isn't. Uh, so these are the kind of uh, instruments we have to play a very different role uh, to commercial banks. If a deal can be done by the commercial banks, I'm very happy. We, I would actually tell my people to back off because our job is done. This thing can be done by the commercial sector. So if you look at, you know, we have this thing called a tourism fund. So if you look at tourism fund, um, what we're doing is we, we work with the Ministry of Tourism. We have these funds that are lent at a preferential rate uh, to borrowers. Then we go to specific areas and say, okay, this area, is this is the whole ecosystem for tourism. The private sector wants to do all these projects. These are the projects, these half these projects can be financed by Maybank and CIMB, etc. But this other half, like maybe a water park or something, uh, is a little bit more tricky, right? But without the water park, this stuff that CIMB and Maybank want to finance cannot happen, right? Because you can have, say, they want to, they're happy to finance a hotel, but you can't have a hotel without the water park. We will probably take the risk on the, more of the risk on water park. Um, because we can see that this is a trigger to creating um, the, the tourism activity in that whole area. So how do you align the incentives of your bankers to what you want to do? I mean, clearly they might be frustrated when they bring in a deal and then you say, oh, this could go to Maybank. You know, it affects their bonuses. No, no. We, 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 we are, our people are not as financially minded uh, as um, commercial bankers. I'm very clear on that. Uh, and if you really are in it just to make money, don't work for me, right? That's not what we're here for. We want people to get, um, you know, a decent competitive income, um, but we're not driven um, by financial incentives. You want to be financial, you go and work for CIMB or maybe. Mm, so social impact is important. Yeah, yeah. And I can tell you there is a large surge in younger people who are just like that. You know, to them, it's much more important uh, about what they're doing for the environment, what they're doing for, for society as a whole. Uh, and they're much less bothered about um, their, their bonuses and, 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 and income and so on. Are you morphing into more of a Kazana national role? 
Well, that's a fair question because in many countries, they don't have a sovereign wealth fund. They have a development finance institution only. Uh, in our case, we do have a kind of uh, strategic development uh, fund that works closely with the government and has, in, in, in many respects, taken on uh, some of the roles that uh, Bank of Bangladesh should have been doing. There is a, quite a sad history of DFIs in Malaysia because, you know, whereas, uh, you know, we have transformed banks, we transformed GLCs, etc. We even transformed, you know, corporate governance uh, in many ways, Bursa, etc. DFIs are in many ways in a time warp, right? And it, you could argue it's worse because rather than creating bigger, larger DFIs, we proliferated. You know, there are many, you know, politicians, etc., that wanted to, you know, kind of hang uh, their achievement on the creation of a new entity. So most countries have two or three DFIs, we have 13. And therefore, a lot of inefficiencies and actually the, the, the kind of capability of MOF to oversee these many, many institutions uh, is also a big problem because how do you spread your people and your oversight uh, over so many entities? So, you know, there is a need uh, to transform DFIs uh, in Malaysia. How do you create longevity in, in your strategy? Uh, for example, should they be listed so that there is market discipline or it's not the right model? No, it's not the right model. It's not the right model. There's one thing I learned, uh, one of the first things, uh, one of the reasons I want to do this because you know this market model, I've been there and done that. Right? This is very new. This is very focused on uh, the nation first. This is focused on society first. This is focused on the environment first. Uh, we have no interest uh, in being listed, although one could be reminded that uh, this is the origin of DBS. DBS was a development bank in Singapore uh, until Singapore didn't need a development bank. Some mature countries feel they don't need one, but actually in France uh, and uh, some other, and even India, they're actually starting up new development banks because more and more people feel that this, there's this role for development bank uh, that uh, still needs to be fulfilled even when you're uh, quite developed because you know there are there is this gap between what the commercial sector will do versus what the the, the country or the economy as a whole really needs. So the yeah. time when your father got involved in the setting up of Bank Pembangunan and now um, Malaysia is in quite a different place in many aspects. What role should DFIs like Bank Pembangunan play in Malaysia given it given our current state of development developing going to be developed soon? In the start, it was all about, you know, large ticket infrastructure uh, development, for instance. Uh, today, you know, the priorities, you know, things like we have a digital fund uh, supporting companies that are tra transforming into digital or, or entrepreneurial in the digital sector. So depending on where uh, national priorities are, uh, that's where we can uh, align, we will align Bank um, uh, priorities, and I would say that in the near term, uh, we also have this, you know, need to be counter-cyclical at a time when banks, you know, in the downturn, banks get very conservative. Banks get very reluctant to lend. Uh, and that's where actually Bank Pembangunan needs to lend more. And, you know, in good times, we actually should retreat, right? When, when commercial banks are very happily pumping the economy, lending lots of money, we, 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 we should retreat. We don't need to be there. Uh, but when the, there's this, the private sector is failing, this is where uh, we need to be much more aggressive. And, and, and coming out of this pandemic, uh, there are many, many reasons for us uh, to do things. I mean, our horizons are also very different to a commercial bank. We can lend much longer 
uh, than the commercial banks, right? Because we can we can we can wait it out. We can say, okay, never mind. This is a good business. The country needs this business. After post COVID, this business needs to be around because you know you can't have an, a nation without this strategic uh, um, uh, company, for instance. Uh, that's when we put our balance sheet to you know help the company tie through. If you just leave it to commercial bank, you know as soon as it's MPL, they send it to the recovery guys. The recovery guys will be chasing, uh, they'll be pulling the plug. Yeah, but as you know, you know the typical commercial bank they say you know is they basically you know pull the umbrella when it starts raining. What will help bank pembangunan? For example, does it have a deposit taking license? Does it need one? Um, it, it doesn't, um, and it it. It may need one, um, but you know it's not uh, high on my my priority list. Yeah, it has a wholesale uh, deposit taking capability, but not retail, uh, not uh, SME, and we also don't operate maybe um, people's uh, um, transaction operating accounts, etc. So these are the kind of growth or developmental expansion of activities that we are currently look, looking at. So in five years' time, how would you say uh, you can look back and say, okay, I think I've done my job with Bank Pembangunan. How would the bank look like? The, the bank will hopefully uh, be a much more effective partner uh, to the government uh, in development. The bank will be established as Malaysia, Malaysia's premier development finance institution. Uh, the bank will be able to annually demonstrate uh, a list of uh, projects that it has supported uh, and the results from those projects in terms of uh, employment, uh, environmental enhancement, etc. Um, in a very transparent manner. Um, I think that would be an achievement. Um, I think today Bank Pembangunan is very wholesale. Uh, as you know, we've merged with Dana Jamin. Um, but that's also another wholesale. Um, then the question is whether we merge with SME and Exim and become, you know, uh, uh, go into the, the kind of mid-corps and uh, SME sector. Um, that is something the government still has to uh, decide. Um, I would imagine that even if that, that if those mergers don't take place, Bangunan itself uh, may uh, widen its coverage to SMEs anyway. Uh, because I think there can never be enough uh, support for SMEs, which is just a large segment and somewhat underserved segment uh, of our economy. What about merging with MIDF? Um, that's kind of above my pay grade. Um, I don't, you know, I've at a time when, you know, we we were a kind of fully commercial entity. It was a different game. We took a decision, and Southern Bank didn't want to merge, so we launched a hostile bid. Uh, but in this case, these are all government-owned entities. So it's above my, my pay grade. If the government uh, thinks we should merge, then, you know, I will look at it and uh, advise whether it's in the best interest of Bank Pembangunan. And if it is, then uh, we will go ahead and do it. Uh, but I'm not going to chase these things because, you know, that's really not my remit. Would MIDF be a good fit with uh, Bank Pembangunan? Well, MIDF has two parts or three parts. It has its commercial activities. It has its very commercial uh, merchant bank and, and I think a funds management uh, business as well. And then it has these preferential rate funding uh, for SMEs that are directly given by, by the Ministry of Trade. Yeah, so if we are to merge, then there will be these complications of its commercial entity. Because as I said, um, I don't think um, Bank Pembangunan should 
get involved in pure commercial entities. So maybe you could say that MIDF actually, uh, we should only merge with half of MIDF. So on a personal level, you've said you want to change politics. You don't want to be in politics. Uh, what aspect of politics would you like to change? Oh, I don't know where I start really. I've come up with this idea of a better Malaysia assembly. Uh, and the wider perspective is that I think that Malaysia needs to embrace deliberative democracy like many countries across the world today. Um, and in that process, I think we need to look at how we select our leaders, how we govern the leaders we select. Uh, so that, in a nutshell, is politics. The origin of politics today is, of course, the how constituencies are uh, laid out, uh, because that's the first that incentivizes behavior of the politicians, that incentivizes behavior of the political parties, uh, and uh, I th and also uh, relatedly um, how we um, vote them in whether it's first past the post or whether it's proportional representation. Uh, these are issues, you know, uh, that we need to uh, confront uh, in the overall uh, scheme of trying to uh, reshape politics for Malaysia. Clearly, uh, there is a problem with our politics. Yeah, very, very clearly. Um, and I worry uh, because, you know, there was an assumption after GE14 that, you know, Barisan National after 61 years uh, was defeated. Uh, so therefore we have greater democracy. But that was a pretty big assumption <laughs> because there was nothing to give the certainty that the two-party uh, system would actually be stable uh, and um, make sensible decisions, right? Many, many countries across the world have actually experienced this. Uh, in a multi-ethnic uh, society where identity politics is so strong, you need to be very careful because the incentives, incentives of, you know, exploiting identity or playing majoritarianism is actually enhanced by um, the, uh, you know, um, um, the level of competition uh, in politics. Yeah, so uh, we need to relook and sort of say at that assumption uh, and say that actually what's happened is we've actually become a lot more unstable since since GE14. Yeah, when I talk to people, they say, oh, this is the necessary phase that we need to go through as a young democracy, so to speak. Apparently, 50, 60 years, is, we're still considered young. But I have my doubts about that. And is that what you are saying? You are saying yeah. that this, yeah. this step is unnecessary. We need to avoid this phase or we need to quickly move out of this phase? No, what I'm saying is that there is no guarantee that this phase will let will, will will take you to a better place. And if you just say leave it, you could wake up tomorrow with extreme majoritarianism. You know the problem with democracy. People say, oh, you know, the, the majority, the majority uh, decides, or the majority is empowered, right? So what about the minorities, right? What do we do about the minorities? If we all vote according to identity, then okay, then we just have a Malay government now. So where is the protection for the minorities? Where is integration? Where is the building of a nation? Or you could go the other way, where you could get you know authoritarianism, right? When you know you, you go around in circles, you can't find a prime minister, and everybody gets fed up. And one day, um, you just get you know you you have a dictator, 
uh, back in power, right? Uh, you get uh, soldiers on the streets. That could be another extreme. So why do you think that, you know, we necessarily have to go this through this process and end up in a better place? That is my worry. Because yes, you know, if you look at some hom more homogeneous countries, they went through this difficult process uh, and they ended up in a better place. Um, but I'm just not sure. And two is, if you look at, you know, some countries that have ended up politically in a better place, like Indonesia, for instance, uh, don't forget, they went through fairly extensive um, overhaul resets, you know, after Suharto, you had Habibi, uh, and then he triggered this whole um, um, kind of recalibration of the system, the federal, regional balance, you know, um, the electoral processes, uh, the kind of balance of power between president and the uh, institutions, uh, as well as the legislation, legislator and so on. So there was a, there was a reset in Indonesia. And then after the reset, it took a little bit of um, um, settling in, but look at the democracy in Indonesia today. You see, the problem with the reset typically is it is people have appetite for a reset when they have enough pain. We don't have enough pain. Yeah. And we, Asian financial crisis, we were protected because of capital controls from the extremes of the pain. So one could argue that actually it was nice not to suffer so much. Right. But as a result of not suffering so much, we did not have an overhaul of our political system. And whilst things were a bit better after the Asian financial crisis, you know, you had this corporate governance, GLC reform, right? it was a bit better. But the elephant in the room was we never had political transformation. And eventually the fact that we only fixed two legs of a three-legged table bit us back, right? So this third leg, right, will remain relatively dysfunctional and started encroaching uh, into the other parts of uh, our system. And that's, that's really uh, the problem that kind of led up to 1MDB and so on. So better Malaysia Assembly, that's something that you are quite actively championing. Um, what's the progress of this? I understand you've sent a proposal. Yes, I've sent a, uh, a letter to the uh, His Majesty the King. And, you know, one mustn't over dramatize um, that, the effect of that letter, because, you know, to me, in every country, when you have the introduction of these citizens' assemblies and all that, it is a initiative by all the major institutions, right? And our constitution also limits what the monarchy can do. And this thing ultimately has to be done um, by, um, uh, in collaboration, uh, with the parliament and the government as well. Uh, so, you know, apart from sending a letter to uh, His Majesty, I'm also uh, engaging political parties uh, and politicians in order to get that support, as well as uh, NGOs, you know. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, 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 quite, it's quite hard work talking to a lot of people, uh, but one does need that um, conversation because there's a lot of, you know, when people read me writing a letter to the king, people wanted to make all sorts of things out of it, right? People thought, oh, these are, you know, 55 people who basically think they're so clever that they want to run the country now. Or, you know, why does he want to involve the monarchy? And, you know, most Malaysians criticize before they read, 
right? And a lot of people criticized because they saw my list of 55 and they didn't like a few people, right? You know, people like looking at names, but honestly, you are meant to look at that list and find people you like and people you dislike. That was intentional because I wanted to demonstrate that people who don't like each other, have very different views, can come together and work together for the betterment of the nation. I, there were many people who actually initially didn't want to sign the letter because they say, hey, uh, and I, say I, cannot, I cannot be on the same table as this person or that person. And I, you know, I'd spent time, you know, hours explaining and say, hey, look, I want you to sign to demonstrate you and that person you don't like can sit down, discuss, and, and, and collaborate to a better Malaysia. And the whole reason for deliberative democracy is just is, is, is arguing that we need a different way to solve our solutions. Parliament is very partisan. They make decisions uh, based on their uh, electoral needs, right? And they're very short term. All over the world now, you know, many countries are kind of saying, look, that cannot be the only uh, way of practicing democracy. We need to supplement deliberate, uh, uh, representative democracy with deliberative democracy, where we make decisions, they, the recommendations are made based on deliberations, uh, based on reason, not political might or financial might. Yeah, you get average citizens coming down, getting advice, and then trying to find solutions. We don't, we're not like black, uh, uh, black or white, we're like gray, because we can come together and say, okay, why don't we compromise uh, and come up with this solution? Now, this is not how parliament works. Parliament, you put out a proposal and you fight based on the fact that I'm on this team or you're on that team, right? Uh, it doesn't really matter what the individual is saying. Look, in representative democracy, you vote for an MP for four or five years, and then you basically outsource voting on everything to this person. And the reality, he doesn't care what you want. He cares what his party tells him to, to, to do, right? Or what he needs to do to make sure he wins the next election, not for the long-term well-being of the nation. Yeah, and this is my argument. We need, nothing is perfect. So we need to supplement parliament with all its imperfections with deliberative democracy. And you look at Ireland, Chile, France, Belgium, uh, Brazil, they are all benefiting from this supplement, supplementation, if that word exists, of democracy. Who holds the key to that lock to unlock this and allow for all this supplementation, this kind of discourse? Who is it? Is it the young people who are going to have to demand for this because they are the ones who are going to swing the votes? Well, I think there are a few things. I mean, the parliament uh, and the parliamentarians and the government today uh, could hold the key for now. Or we could go into G15 with some political parties pushing for democracy as part of the manifesto. And if they do well, then presumably, you know, we have a good chance of uh, doing this. I mean, I personally, I find it surprising why any political party would not want to embrace the idea of given, giving bigger voice to citizens. And this doesn't need to be just done at a national level. It can be done at the regional level, state levels, right, where you have platforms for citizens to speak up directly on issues. Right? If you look at democracy in its origin, right, it was the agora where the Greeks would go. Yeah, they go themselves and they argue and deliberate themselves. Uh, and then ultimately they would, they would vote on something. Right? They didn't outsource to representatives. So in many ways, this is a purer form of democracy. The complicated part of it is who will be in this assembly. 
in some countries like Ireland, you had you had a hybrid where you had one third uh, politicians and yet two thirds randomly selected citizens. In Chile, you had 155 non-politicians elected by region. So there are many different models. We have to decide what, what model is best for, uh, for Malaysia. But ultimately, we need, you know, it is um, the, uh, a citizen's body. What might fit Malaysia? Is it like a nominated MP kind of system? No, it has to be a hybrid. I think it has to be a hybrid because I think we need to um, trust the citizens. So I think we need a degree of random selection as well. Um, but, you know, I don't think you can just randomly select and insist. I think you need to randomly select a lot of people and then have the conversation whether they want to spend a lot of valuable time sitting in this assembly. Then I think you need representation. Uh, so you need to get community leaders, uh, NGOs, you know, trade unions, etc. Uh, represented. So I think it's a hybrid. There is the process of deliberation, then come up with recommendations and it goes to parliament. Parliament can can take it or, or reject it, right? So there, there are, there, it's not such a risky thing to do. Early on, there was the G25 or the G20 group. So comprising of, you know, really smart people and they've written letters, they've, you know, put their opinions out there. Um, but they also represent the elite group. And what you are suggesting might also face some, you know, the kind of same criticism. And, you know, what's your take on this? How, how do you respond to that? People will criticize. I don't mind people criticizing. I mind they criticize without reading. Right? How is this group elitist? There's nothing elitist about this group at all. It's about advocating a citizen's assembly. It is about not wanting yet another council appointed by the prime minister of elites. What is probably, you know, instinctively elite uh, from this is is coming from me and i can tell you many uh, the most you know it's, it's so funny when i i read an uh, article by abidin the other day and he was saying you know in the end of the day the worst stereotypers are the reformers themselves right because <laughs> in the end of the day you know some of them find it hard to digest that you know i'm advocating a reform which will enable more voice for the ordinary citizen, right? It takes some digesting that is coming from me, right? And some people look at me and say, I, I'm the epitome of an elite, you know? I'm, a, you know, my father was a, a PM and my brother was PM and my, I was a, a, a banker for many years. So anything that comes from my mouth must be elitist, right? And that is the stereotyping, yeah? So I beg people, please, you know, let's not, uh, you need to get over that. Let's not judge the book by the by its cover. Look at my content. This is about advocating a bigger voice for the right. Why is this important to you? It is important to me because I thought about it long and hard. And I think it is the only way forward. And it would be, I think, if it doesn't happen, I'm just going to be satisfied that I tried. It's nothing to me, <laughs> really, honestly. It's nothing. nothing if you read in my what book, sense? It's nothing. I mean, I've, I have no upside from this. All I want is a better Malaysia like everybody else. And I've come up with an idea. 
I, it would be wrong for me to have spent a year in Oxford thinking about this idea and not try and push this idea because I'm so clear that this, this, this is the path to better Malaysia. If someone comes out and say, you know, actually I have a better idea and I look at his, his or her idea and it's, it is indeed better, so be it, I join you. doesn't matter. But so far, no one has come up with a better idea of how to move towards a better. Everyone bitches and sort of say, yeah, we want this, we want that, we want this. But no one has shown a path to get there. Yes, you know, we, we have good reforms that they wanted, like, you know, signing the ICERD and all that. It cannot be done because of the logjam in our politics. Uh, the long term politics is such that you know every time you come up with an idea, people will wrap it in race and religion, right? And then block it. Vested interest will block it. This is why in my book I talk about this three-headed monster that is so powerful, knows how to block everything. That's why we, we get in this jam. I mean, I stopped campaigning for this this um, um, better Malaysia. Um, uh, after, uh, during the uh, G14 because I read the PH manifesto. I said, oh, this is pretty good, you know. I think a lot of this will be good enough. I mean, why, why do I need to campaign for, for anything more than this? And lo and behold, they couldn't implement it. They couldn't even implement the, some of the most basic things of it because of vested interests. Uh, and so, yes, I have an idea. Please consider it. I mean, that's all I'm saying. And And of course, you know, there are you know, personal reasons for doing this, which is, you know, I feel that, you know, given the legacy and my association with the legacy of what is Malaysia today, you know, uh, I think it's, you know, I do feel uh, the need to uh, try and, you know, help out. It's a, it's a kind of sense that I have this responsibility to, to try and um, um, try and serve the nation in some way, right? That's all. About your book, What's in a Name?, what do you learn through the writing process? Oh, huge, huge, huge amount. Highly recommended uh, thing to everybody. And, uh, you know, I, I, I first of all, um, the first part was about, you know, discovering the fa father I, nev I never really knew. Um, and then I had this clarity, you know, this was, you know, this uh, sort of pin drop moment when I realized that, you know, a lot of it is about the tension between the two parts of his legacy, you know, the, 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 the kind of tangible parts, the institutions, the policies, versus the intangible parts, uh, the, the kind of how-to, uh, his value system. And uh, these things have, are today at odds. If you really believe in his methods, his values, what's, what he believed in, and you look at the policies and institutions that he created, they clash. Yeah, and this is, why you know better malaysia is the way uh, to to express this clash right we need these values say that you know he will be the first one to say that these things that i put are no longer fit for purpose they yeah, need to be reformed so that's one two is of course you know it, 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 it enabled me to reflect on my career at, at, at cimb you know uh, remember uh, things and 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 kind of uh, understand uh, things uh, as well for what they were. Um, sometimes when you're in the thick of it, uh, you don't really understand. Uh, you know, I reflected in the book. You know, moments when you know I thought I was I was wrong or I thought I was um, I, I, I I did things when I shouldn't have done and and so on. I tried to be as honest uh, as possible uh, in the book. And you know, I I, I wanted to write it because I felt I had this story to tell about living in the Malaysian political economy. 
through this period and understanding it and now saying it needs to be overhauled. In Malaysia doesn't have an economy, we only have a political economy and that is constraining uh, the development of this nation. Uh, and then the last section is of course the sort of better Malaysia stuff and how to. So you've had front row seats on pretty much of some of the biggest developments that took place in Malaysia. Any thoughts for a next book? <laughs> no. I mean, I think I've, this book is about my 30-year career. You know, when you write a book, the most important thing is to always remember that someone's got to read it. It's not for you. So I was very careful, you know, very clear, and I don't want to document everything. I don't want to like put there, you know, this year we won Best Investment Bank and that kind of stuff, right? That's just so not interesting, right? So I put in there as, uh, you know, all what I thought were interesting to, to the readers. Lah. So that was the only way that it was incomplete. If you think of another memoir, well, it's got to be subject to me doing good things and interesting things over the next 20 years, lah. unless you want me to write a novel. <laughs> You know, I will go through a process of, of better articulating. I mean, I think certainly for one, uh, this whole better Malaysia thing needs to be uh, done in Bahasa uh, for the average uh, person to, to, to understand. Uh, it has to, you know, touch on bread and butter issues uh, and so on. So um, I am going through a process of, of, of doing that. And we would take that to Mandarin language at some point uh, and so on. There's, there, is, there, is those, um, there is those next steps that are possible. Um, now, obviously, if tomorrow the parliamentarians and government say, look, let's have a better measures and be done, I don't have to do all this campaigning. Right? Mm, but it makes me wonder, what would, what would tilt them over? What is it? It has to be something, a gap in the system that would, cause people to say, okay, we have to do this. Normally, when people resort to this, it's too late. To me, clearly, the trajectory of Malaysia today is very much on the downslope. And on the downslope, you accelerate. Right? You want to wait for us to hit the, the, the end of that road, or you want to step up and say, look, you know, let's not wait for that. Let's come up and, 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 and try and come up with a, uh, a better way. And we can do it. We can do it. We've done it before. And this is this is really a blessed country and a great country. And there's so many reasons why uh, we need to fix it. We have to fight vested interests. I, 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 you know, I've seen it. You know, I know this, this you know, trying to convince vested interests to, to change is going to be really, really tough. But I'm really appealing to everyone to not put yourself first. Put the nation first. You know, we can all give to actually share more later. Uh, you know, many, many of the best deals, uh, even in the corporate sector, are not done because you, you, you both agree that this deal benefits everybody, but you spend all your time arguing that this deal benefits one person more than the other, and then the deal runs away. I've seen so many of those, right? It's a good deal, but it cannot be done because we're fighting about who, who earns more, right? Well, in some sense, during COVID-19, that kita jaga kita movement, although I, I'm not sure whether you call it a movement, but it was a very popular hashtag, could see that people just rise up to the occasion when it's painful enough. Malaysians are, are, are like that. And I, you know, people keep saying to me, say, look, you know, your message 
if it goes to ground and you really are able to explain it, uh, will definitely resonate. Will definitely resonate with with the rakyat. So go to ground. But I'm just hesitating. I'm not a politician. You, you know, might have to, no choice. Going to ground, campaigning like that is 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 a politician's life, and you know. Uh, I thought my role was to intellectualize this and put it out there. Well, who knows? How's your health been after recovering from prostate cancer? Well, thank you, thank you. Uh, I've I've been fine, uh, and um, you know that was, uh, of course, you know, a time when you come to terms with your mortality, lah. But uh, um, you know, I've uh, learned my lesson in terms of taking care of my health and doing my checkups and all that. Well, thank you so much for speaking to us. I wish you all the best and stay well. Good to see you now. Tan Sri Nazir Razak, banker and chairman of Bank Pembangunan Malaysia. I'm Noel Lim on Speaks by Maybank Investment Banking.